Welcome to the HCSS podcast. My name is Noah Wanabo, Assistant Analyst with the Hague Center for Strategic Studies and your host today. I am joined by Lucia Van Gons, HCSS Strategic Energy Advisor, and Yilis Van Den Beukel, an Independent Energy Analyst and a former Principal Geoscientist at Shell. Today, we're talking about one of the most important commodities that greases the gears of the modern world, oil. This conversation comes in conjunction with the recently published paper titled Toward Tighter Oil Markets Before Peak Oil Demand, uh, which can be found on the HCSS website at hcss.nl. So we're now climbing out of the oil glut of 2014 uh, when oil prices crashed to historic lows from over $110 per barrel in spring 2014 to under $30 a barrel in 2016. That's a decrease in price of almost 70%. Uh, Of course, this results in happy consumers, uh, but causes strains on the oil industry and governments in the oil-producing nations, uh, along with a whole host of secondary effects. So can you explain what happened and how we got here? Well, about uh, five years ago, 2010-2014, we saw a gradual development of uh, oversupply increasing. And there were two things in the background there. Uh, on the supply side. Uh, First of all, U.S. shale really taking off. So the high oil prices stimulated uh, U.S. shale production. And over there, technically, they really cracked the code to get shale production off the ground uh, in earnest. And secondly, uh, we had all the conventional uh, oil projects that were set up during this, uh, this period from 2010 to 2014 in the high oil price world. And that uh, the two of them eventually led to more and more oversupply, uh, culminating in 2014 when OPEC, and in particular Saudi Arabia, the dominant member of OPEC, was faced with a choice. What do we do now? Do we start cutting back production of OPEC or do we try to defend price? And what they decided was not to cut back on production and hence the big oil, the oil price drop that we saw in, uh, in 2014 and, and 2015. And now, can you explain why Saudi Arabia and the rest of OPEC uh, would decide not to cut back on oil production uh, and instead let the oil prices drop uh, to the point that they did? Uh, It would only be a very temporary remedy. Saudi Arabia cut back in the early 1980s from about 10 million barrels a day uh, all the way down to 3 million barrels a day in 1984 until they finally had to admit, hey, this strategy is not working. And that's been a real learning experience for them. So something they didn't want to repeat. Maybe to add on what uh, Yilis just said, uh, Saudi Arabia also was very much into keeping its market share, especially the large consumers in Asia, and especially China, are good customers. And they want to keep their customers. And even with a lower oil price, they thought they could manage. So market share was a very important determinant if you talk about the, the decision OPEC made end of 2014 not to uh, uh, increase production in order to slow down the slide as far as the oil price is concerned. So, of course, for Saudi Arabia and these other oil-producing nations, this hasn't been ideal. This is for a lot of OPEC members, but also other large oil-producing nations like Russia. Not a very good story, simply because their income and their state income is very much dependent on selling of oil. 
Uh, therefore, by the end of 2016, OPEC, together with another large producer, Russia, decided to again regulate the, the oil production by taking oil out of the market, uh, and therefore the oil price went up again. And we see this, if you like, moving up of the oil price uh, at the beginning of this year, very much coming into play, given the decision made by OPEC+. And I saw that your paper mentions the OPEC dilemma. Can you explain really quick what that is? The OPEC dilemma, it's, it's, it's basically um, short-term uh, getting your price uh, up as much as you can versus uh, long-term uh, revenue maximization and also being seen as a reliable uh, source of energy. It's in their interest to secure a long-term future of oil. And they have reasons as well to keep the price high, but not too high. So turning to these scenarios that you've outlined in your paper, these short, medium, and long-term scenarios, what do you focus on? Because it seems like with so many variables to take into account, that's quite a difficult task. Um, so indeed, uh, predicting oil prices is very difficult. Uh, basically, the reason being that you need such a small change in supply or demand uh, to have major consequences. So a 2% change in supply or demand can lead to a change in oil prices of a factor of two or so. And uh, you can distinguish, for instance, between long-term trends on the supply side. There you can try and predict some things like uh, deep water projects, uh, how are they evolving, how many FIDs, final investment decisions are taken. And you can sort of make an estimate of how much new oil is coming on the market in three, four or five years or so. Uh, but other things are more difficult. Uh, demand, we see demand growing healthily, uh, about 1.5% over 2017. Uh, that's probably going to stay that way, but who knows if there's, say, a major economic crisis or uh, a major trade conflict or so, and things may, uh, may change. Uh, geopolitically, uh, there may be all kinds of developments, say Middle East, we see the tension between Saudi Arabia and, and Iran, for instance, uh, so far, that hasn't really had much of an influence on supply, but it's not a given that that could not change uh, one day. Perhaps the proxy war that we now see happening in Yemen extends further to Iraq or so and has major influences on, on oil supply. So with all of those unknowns, what do you focus on to guide your most likely scenarios? Well, first of all, demand. How is the world economy evolving? How are trade conflicts uh, evolving? Uh, second, OPEC, OPEC Plus, uh, how quickly are they phasing out their production cuts? Uh, thirdly, the conventional oil industry uh, is now, uh, say, the flow of new projects uh, coming back again, or does investment remain very subdued as they have been over the last uh, two or three years? And finally, fourth, U.S. shale, uh, how are they doing? Uh, what kind of constraints uh, do we see appearing? Uh, we now have, um, say, uh, constraints on uh, Permian pipeline capacity uh, popping up. So that, that's four items to, uh, to look at, and probably many more. Uh, what will happen geopolitically with, say, the struggle for power in the Middle East? And finally, a U.S. president, unlike any U.S. president that we have seen so far in over uh, two centuries of history. 
So what we can do is try and pick up, say, long-term trends, especially on the supply side. What would happen, say, if demand continues to grow in the, at the same healthy pace as we see now? And that's where we see the potential for tighter oil markets and where we've made a distinction between short-term and medium-term. So short-term, as long as the current OPEC cuts are hanging around the market and they're being uh, phased out gradually, we see a limited potential for really higher oil prices. But once that we say in 2020, when OPEC or OPEC Plus together with Russia has phased out its cuts, what will happen then? Uh, we may well be in a situation there where we've got historically very low spare capacity and it doesn't need much of an event to, to really lead to tight uh, markets. Okay, so what do you think are the most likely scenarios? In our paper, we made this very clear distinction between short and medium-term market developments and uh, short towards 2020, mid towards 2025. And we reckon during that period, between now and 2025, the world is still, if you like, in its old modus, which means boom and bust. And that's what we were familiar with quite a bit in the last decades. However, on the longer term, there is this new element playing a very important role, and that is energy transition. I mean, after the uh, Paris Accords, a lot of policies in, the, in, in major consuming nations, but also hopefully on time with producing nations, are being made such to reduce CO2 emissions. And that means that oil has to be replaced by something else. And that competition, as far as oil is concerned, in the energy transition is not still a very is technological given. Uh, in the transport sector, where the bulk of the oil is being used, apart from the petrochemical sector, um, we see that maybe in the with the personal cars, electric vehicles are going to play an important role. But as far as it is now, and probably in the next 10 years, it will not reduce the oil consumption that much. However, if you talk about trucks, if you talk about the maritime sector or the aviation sector, there still there is not a large technological breakthrough such that it can replace oil and oil products, therefore, um, in a very rapid mode. Also in the petrochemical sector, a lot has, has to happen from the technological side in order to replace oil, which means that peak oil demand, and when that will take place in the future, the verdict is out. And so does that uncertainty around peak oil demand affect investment in oil markets? Well, you see that especially oil companies these days, also very much driven by the low uh, oil price world we lived in in the last couple of years, they are very much looking at short-term projects with a, re- with a relatively fast payout. And that means that the uh, uh, oil reserves to production ratio these days of international oil companies who, are, uh, who have shareholders is, is not more than 10 While if you look at international oil companies like the Saudi Aramco's or the national Iranian oil companies of this world, they have ratios up to 50, which means they can still still have have production power for 50 years to eventually uh, uh, feed the world. While in fact for oil companies and also for investors, therefore, that's much lower simply because they see that energy transition will be with us in some decades to come. And so the energy transition is affecting the way these oil companies and oil markets operate. Yeah, what we see with the international oil companies is more focus on development, less focus on exploration. 
uh, more focus on short payback times. Uh, we've seen them all, with the exception of ExxonMobil, uh, moving out of Canadian oil sands, simply because that's a project with the longest uh, payback time. Uh, and uh, that is definitely a change in the major oil companies. So they do take the energy transition seriously. They, you see them changing uh, investments, uh, not just by investing in renewables, but also by uh, changing investments in, the, in their core business. Though you do mention in your paper that there is a bit of a two-tiered approach to this energy transition with uh, most countries in the West sort of falling in line with the idea of transitioning away from oil, uh, but that's not exactly uh, the same across the world. Yeah, one of the uh, issues, say for a country like the Netherlands, with high ambition in, uh, in, in, in say, uh, addressing global warming and climate change, is, is that uh, different countries, different parts of the world, uh, may react completely differently. Say Europe, Germany, the Netherlands in particular, may take climate change very seriously. But how about Russia? How about, say, the Middle East or Saudi Arabia? They get a lot of income from fossil fuels. Uh, and uh, for a country like Russia, for instance, climate change is not that big a deal. They can live with one or two degrees uh, uh, global warming or so. So how will, how will those react? And how will populations in Western countries react when they see that part of the world uh, do, take, uh, do take climate change seriously and other parts of the world don't react that much? So the problem of free riders uh, with respect to addressing climate change is, is a problem that's there to stay. Uh, we're being asked to, uh, say, uh, live with a certain amount of pain and costs, and rightly so, uh, for our grandchildren uh, or for the children, grandchildren living in very different countries. That's a good thing to do, but it may not always be easy to get the support of populations for that. But of course, in the meantime, oil is here with us uh, for quite some time to come, uh, which is why you break up your paper into the short, medium and long term when doing this analysis. Well, you see in the financial world, but also in the investment world, that there is a, um, a, a clear discussion, but also moving away from investments in fossil fuels, and then particularly from, uh, from coal, which is a good thing, because there is competition for coal, and it is very um, uh, polluting as far as uh, CO2 emissions is concerned. But for oil and gas... Um, there is actually still investment needed, at least for the medium term. And we have actually explained that because otherwise there can be a period that the oil prices uh, will be relatively high simply because demand is outpacing supply. Uh, on, the long, on the long term, though, you know, you can reckon, well, we should not invest in oil simply because, you know, it will be, in the end of the day, stranded assets, so hence it's a best bad investment. But as, as we said earlier, if you look at, the, at the, the reserve production ratio of the large international oil companies who, are, who have shareholders, there actually you see that it is less than 10. And that means that in 10 years' time, we still, have, we still need oil and we're still using oil, you know, in order to keep our economy, uh, our, our, our economy going. So, so in that respect, investing in, uh, in oil for the, for the short term, and then I'm saying short term, 10, 15 years, is maybe not such a bad thing simply because there is no alternative yet. Now, your paper also focuses quite a bit on the effects of shale oil. Uh, how has that been affecting oil prices? 
what we've seen 2016-2017 is, is shale oil growing, again in response to rising prices. And over 2017, uh, particularly in the second half of 2017, we see basically shale oil growing as fast as it can. That means on a yearly basis an increase of about 1 million barrels a day adding in production capacity. And that's as fast as they can grow. So we've seen about two years, 2016-2017, where oil prices moved in a band, which we often refer to as the shale band, something like 40 to $55. Uh, if the price dropped, then rig activity dropped U.S. shale oil production dropped if the price rose. Within two or three months, you saw the recount in the U.S. Uh, get going up. You saw shale production rising again. And now, and it basically meant that shale oil production had a very large influence on the oil price, much bigger than, say, the total amount of uh, shale oil production would suggest, because after all, it's only about 5 or 6% of global oil production. Now that shale oil production has been growing as fast as it can, something like 1 to 1.2 billion barrels a day adding of production per year, growing as fast as it can and it cannot grow any faster, it's losing its capacity to put a lid on oil prices. And what we've seen now, late 2017, early 2018, is that oil prices have moved outside of the shale band to, to a higher level. And currently, what we're now seeing, second half of 2018, that is not so much U.S. shale, but that pricing power has returned to OPEC again. And why has shale taken off in the U.S., uh, but not really to the same extent anywhere else, uh, like in La Vaca Muerta region of Argentina, uh, which you also mentioned in your paper? Um, why is it successful in the United States? Well... Uh, the United States is a special country, uh, geology-wise. Uh, the uh, knowledge on the subsurface is nowhere as good as in the United States. Uh, Cost-wise, uh, it's maybe unexpected for people outside of the oil and gas industry, but costs for doing something in oil and gas and drilling are nowhere as low as in the United States. Then thirdly, private mineral rights. So uh, owners, small communities, they have an interest in shale oil. Uh, going off. It creates money, it creates jobs uh, for them. Um, if we look at the Vaca Muerta, which is probably the most promising area for shale oil outside of the US and Canada, uh, then we see, okay, after about 100 or 200 wells, you get uh, well recoveries at production close to that in the US, but you don't get the low costs that you have in the US. Break-even costs over there are about 50 to 100 percent higher, and that means for current oil prices, it's simply not economic. Uh, so there's a whole series of points that has resulted in, in shale taking off in the U.S. and, and not anywhere else. Your paper also touches on deep water. Uh, can you explain a bit about uh, the role that is playing? Deep water is, is making a bit of a comeback. You see ExxonMobil putting in a lot of money and effort on its uh, Liza Guiana discoveries, uh, now going up to 4 billion barrels in recoverable oil. That's a major amount, even for a company like uh, ExxonMobil. Um, and you see also U.S. shale has seen rising prices in, 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 the, in the contractors industry, the service industry, basically because they were maxed out on capacity. Whereas deep water, for instance, uh, there's still a lot of overcapacity and, and the price levels, the cost levels are sort of flattish. So you can see the competitive position of Deepwater uh, with respect to U.S. shale improving again over the last one or two years. So one thing to realize is that 
the big advantage of U.S. shale is not so much having the lowest break-even costs. They don't have that, in fact, but rather the flexibility that it gives you on investment. You can rapidly turn off, increase or decrease investments, and you've got a very short payback time. But if it's about lowest break-even costs, probably deep water is beating U.S. shale right now. Hmm. And I suppose to wrap up, uh, is oil going to continue playing an important role in the coming years, uh, particularly with regard to the ongoing energy transition? In our paper, in our last uh, commands, we actually say that oil will be with us for quite some time to go. And that has everything to do that the demand for oil, especially in um, large consuming nations, and that's not only the West or America, but also uh, the new emerging economies, will be with us for quite some time. And, and that means that as long as we don't have a clear economic competitor for oil in the next decades, as far as the transport sector is concerned, but also the petrochemical industry, then reckon oil is still the most, if you like, the most likely commodity to use. That is different if you talk about natural gas or coal, because there are a lot of com competition for natural gas and coal in the renewable world, which is wind, which is solar, which is biomass, and also nuclear, because we make electricity very often from coal and natural gas. However, you know, electric cars... They at the moment are not a big competitor in the oil, in the international oil world, but maybe in time it will, eh, when there are policies where we will drive much more electric vehicles and hence le less uh, uh, combustion engines for that matter, for, the, for, for trucks, but also in the maritime sector, the aviation sector. There, actually, there is not a short-term solution yet other than using oil products in order to keep that transportation going. And hence this peak oil demand, so the peak in demand as far as oil is concerned, and when that will be, as I said earlier, the verdict is out. You can see more work from the Energy Transition Program at our website, hcss.nl, and you can stay up to date on our latest podcasts and other work from HCSS, following us on our social media channels on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or by subscribing to the newsletter via the website, 